välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Farrochsad och vi är programansvariga för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra författaren Maggie O'Farrell i samtal med Ika Johannesson. Varmt välkomna. Lucrezia hasade sig framåt bit för bit och ställde sig på knä. Intill henne fanns till grinnan. Den bärnstensfärgade sidan, präglad med svarta inskärningar och ellipser, var vänd mot henne. Lucrezia såg hur andetagen fick bröstkorgen att höjas och sänkas. Hon såg var den sluttande skuldran övergick i den känsliga undersidan. Hur de mjuka, breda tassarna, hur benen skälvde. Hon såg hur djuret höjde sin glänsande nos, vädrade i luften och sållade ut allt han hade att berätta. Lucrezia kunde känna sorgen, ensamheten som hon utstrålade, chocken att slitas från sitt hem de många fasansfulla veckorna till sjöss. Hon kunde känna svedan från pissgrappen djuret hade fått, den bittra längtan efter djungens fuktiga, ångande lövvalv och de lockande gröna tunnlarna genom undervegetationen. Där hon ensam hade hela väldet. Den brännande smärtan i tygens hjärta över att nu hållas fängslad bakom ett galler. Fanns det inget hopp? Verkade Tigrinnan fråga. Kommer jag att bli kvar här för alltid? Får jag aldrig återvända hem? Lucrezia kände tårar välla upp i ögonen. Att vara så ensam på ett sådant ställe. Det var varken rättvist eller rätt. Hon skulle be pappa att skicka tillbaka djuret. De kunde ta ombord det på skeppet och segla tillbaka till den plats där de hittat henne. Öppna burgallret och se henne dyka in igen bland de högväxta lavbelutna träden. Långsamt, långsamt stack Lucrezia framhanden. Hon lät fingrarna slinka in genom ett mellanrum mellan järnstängerna. Räckte ut handen och spretade med fingrarna. Sträckte sig ända från axelkulan och tryckte sig med ansiktet mot buren. Tigrinnans päls var smidig, varm, mjuk som dun. Lucrezia lät fingertopparna glida längs djurets rygg. Kände musklerna spela. Kände pälbandet av böjliga ryggkotor. Det var ingen skillnad på den brandgula pälsen och den svarta. Ingen skarv som hon trodde att det kunde finnas. De två färgerna överlappade varandra och gick upp i varandra sömlöst. Tigrinnan svängde runt sitt intrikat tecknade komplexa ansikte som ville hon granska personen bakom en sådan smekning. Utröna vad den betydde. Att se in i hennes ögon var som att skåda anletet på en bländande, förbjuden guddom. Hej och tack. Hej och varmt välkomna hit till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Athena Farossad och jag är programansvarig för litteraturen här på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern tillsammans med Ida Linde. Det ni just hörde det var ett utdrag ur Lucrezias porträtt av Maggie O'Farrell utgiven på Sequa förlag i fantastisk översättning av Malin Bylund Westfeldt. 
Och äntligen ska ni nu få höra Maggie O'Farrell som har kommit hit ikväll. Eh, Maggie O'Farrell är född i Nordirland, uppvuxen i Skottland och Wales. Hon har arbetat som journalist och som lärare i kreativt skrivande. Och boken som vi ska få höra henne prata om ikväll det är hennes tionde roman. Ikväll samtalar hon med journalisten, programledaren och författaren Ika Johannesson. Varmt välkomna. Tack så mycket. Thank you. Thank you. Here we are Maggie. Finally. Finally. There was whooping. They're a very restless audience, aren't they? Yes. Very rowdy. They've been waiting for you. <laughs> I hope they've been waiting two months here. <laughs> what happened when you couldn't come? Well, time? I was all set and I had my bag packed. And as I was going to sleep, I said to my husband, I, I've got a slightly sore throat, but I'm sure it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And then I woke up about four in the morning and I had a massive fever. And... I took some painkillers and I said to my husband, it's fine, I'll be fine, I'll go. <clears throat> and he said, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so then I it was terrible because I had to, you know, tell these people that I was, you know, I was due to arrive in five hours, but actually I was cancelling at the last minute. And it turned out to be COVID, of course. <laughs> so we can blame COVID for that. And which time, how many times have you had COVID now? That was my fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> but I can say that I think the first time was worse and the second time a bit less and then, you know, it was exponentially uh, improving each time. But yeah. I'm hoping that's it now. I'm not, I'm, I don't really want to go for a fifth. <laughs> I think you shouldn't. <laughs> it's really depressing and boring to talk about COVID and the pandemic, of course. We're all so tired of it, but it's kind of related to Lucrezia's portrait, the marriage portrait, which I'd like to begin with uh, talking mm. about to you. Um, I have so many questions for you tonight. Um, but as I understand, um, you wrote uh, the marriage portrait, which is called in English, during the pandemic. Can you tell us about how you discovered this story and what drew you to it? Yes. In fact, you know, sometimes, I think most of the time, actually, with novels, it's never very clear where you first get the idea from. You know, I usually think that ideas for novels creep up on you very gradually. And I think I almost find that they gather behind me in a way, um, and I have to not turn around too quickly and scare them away. But this one was the exception in that it arrived almost fully formed just one day. I was actually, after I'd finished writing a novel called Hamnet, I I couldn't decide what to write next. And so I was doing what I sometimes do when I can't decide, is that I have two desks in my office and I was writing one idea on one desk and then a few days later I would move to the other desk and I'd write the other idea. And I was waiting to see which one took flight, in a sense. But actually what happened was that I <laughs> was... And in fact, I know exactly when it was because it was the beginning of March 2020. It's quite easy to pinpoint these things. Um, this was in the before time, uh, <laughs> just before. And I was actually sitting outside a friend's house waiting for my daughter to come out of what would turn out to be her last play date with a friend for a very long time. But we didn't know that then. Uh, and I was sitting in the car because I was unusually early. I'm usually always late. And I was just thinking about a poem which is quite well-known 
in the UK. I'm not sure how well known it's here. It's known here, but it's by Robert Browning, and it's called My Last Duchess. And it's one of my very favourite poems. And I've been rereading his poetry, and it's about a an Italian Renaissance duke, and he is showing a visitor around his uh, castello, and he pulls back a curtain and shows the visitor a portrait of a very beautiful young girl, and he says... This is my first wife, my my first duchess. And by the way, I, I murdered her because she was annoying. Um, and he, and it actually, it turns out he's talking to the representative of his new fiancé's family, which I always think is quite an astonishing admission, really, yes. to say that he killed his previous wife. So I was just thinking about this poem and I was just wondering if it was based on real people and real events and who she might have been, who this duchess, this dead, murdered duchess might have been. So I looked it up on my very old phone and I, within a minute or two I had her name, which is Lucrezia de' Medici, and her age, which was a shocking 16 when she died. And then this portrait of her, there's only one portrait of her in existence and it was downloading on my phone and I could see this kind of jewelled headband and then this brow and then these eyes and, and as soon as I saw her whole face I just knew that there was I was looking at my next novel that because she looks so um you know most Renaissance portraits are quite impassive and quite expressionless their face is doesn't give an awful lot away but Lucrezia and her portrait who you can see actually on the cover of the Swedish edition um she looks quite anxious and she looks like she has something she wants to say mm. and I just knew in that moment, actually, that I wanted to write the story as she herself might have told it if she was able. But you went from Hamnet, which is also set in history, like pretty far back. I mean, you've been writing in different, uh, like the, 20, the 30s and 50s and 70s before. Yeah. But, but, um, but you still, you wanted to go back that far in history again? Yes. I mean, I suppose, you know, there was an awful lot of vertigo, certainly, that I faced when I was writing Hamnet because it is so long ago, you know, and it's not, I mean, though I'd written in the past before, but never out of the 20th century. Uh, and it, no, so it did seem, but actually I think I possibly had more vertigo in a sense of writing about Shakespeare. That that itself seemed like a really crazy thing to do, you know, <laughs> why would anyone do that? So, but I think, you know, I think vertigo is, is very common when you start writing a novel, you know, when you start writing a book, because, you know, what... You could never say to yourself, you know, I'm about to sit down now and write the first words of something that's probably going to take me three years and I'm going to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until I know it off by heart. And, you know, nobody in their right mind would do that. So you, you ha I think you have to you have to trick yourself every time, don't you? You've got to pretend it's got it's like a tightrope walk um, and you've got to just not look down. You've just got to put one foot in front of the other. I will definitely return to this urge of putting oneself in the situation again and again later in the conversation because I want to stick with uh, Lucrezia. Okay, so you, you get presented with this the photo and you realize that it's a book. You need to do mm. this. How, does, how do you start work then? Like, what do you start by doing? I think... I'm trying to remember what I did with her now. I mean, I think I tried to find out as much as I possibly could about her. Um, which, I mean, the, to be honest, there isn't a huge amount. You know, her life was so short. And actually, strangely, because she does come, obviously, from a very, very well-known family, um, she is one of those, one of the members of it that hasn't actually left much of a mark. But that, in a sense, just made me more intrigued. You know, I think what interests me is 
the people or the characters or the incidents which aren't necessarily in the history books, which aren't necessarily written to the larger framework. And of course, her father was Cosimo de' Medici, who was um, you know, the, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, and her mother was Eleonora di Toledo. And together, the two of them, who also had had an arranged marriage, but they unusually, I think, for that um, class and time, they really loved each other and they were faithful to each other, which I think was even more shocking. Um, and when they were apart, they wrote a lot of letters to each other. Um, because Cosimo absolutely adored Eleonora and he respected her hugely, so much so that he ceded his rule as the ruler of Tuscany to her in his absence, which was really shocking for all the courtiers because suddenly they had to answer to a woman. <laughs> the horror. The horror of that. <laughs> um, but actually their letters are an amazing resource to find out about all sorts of things actually, but uh, uh, also about the domestic life of them. So they had um, 12 children um, and no fewer of him, eight uh, survived infancy. Eleanor's nickname um, um, in among the Florentine people was La Fecundissima, um, which, which means, where, yeah, where, very fecund, very fertile. Yeah. <laughs> fecund is a kind of old fashioned word for fertile, but um, yeah, it was a very well deserved uh, name. But she, but so, so they wrote to each other a lot and they kind of gave this, they, they talked a lot about their children and. Who and it's, it was all very familiar stuff, really, to anyone who has children. It was, you know, so and so has grown out of their shoes. Somebody else needs a new winter smock. Somebody else is refusing to practice their lute. Um, <laughs> but actually, it's very clear from the letters that Cosimo adored Isabella, the the second in line daughter, and Eleonora adored her sons. But Lucrezia, very sadly, doesn't really get much of a mention in any of these letters. Um, She's and it just gave me the impression of her being rather underloved and un uh, overlooked as well, actually. And she was also she was actually never intended to marry Alfonso. Alfonso was uh, betrothed to her older sister Maria, but Maria sadly died just before the wedding, and so Lucrezia was a kind of second choice stand-in bride, which is an awful situation to be in. Terrible situation in every way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but so you wrote this book um, during lockdown mm. at home with three kids. Yes. <laughs> how did that? Uh, how did that affect the book? I mean, you know, I think. I mean, in one way, you know, as we all remember, lockdown was very long, and it was partly very stressful, and also really boring. It was a strange mix, wasn't it, of boring and stressful? And yeah, I was. I had three children at home. Um, one of whom was a sort of 16-year-old who was so furious at being locked in the house with his parents, not surprisingly. And then I had two younger ones who really needed me there during the day, you know, to homeschool them. So it was, but, you know, I mean, in one way, we were very lucky. We had a roof over our heads. We had food in the cupboards. You know, we were really lucky. So I kept trying to remind myself of that. But I found that if I could, so my husband and I split it. I mean, in a way, we were lucky also because we were quite used to working from home and we didn't have to get used to that particularly. But... I'm not very used to homeschooling three children, put it that way. And uh, so we kind of tried to do it. We swapped, we did an afternoon or a morning. And I found that if I could spend an hour or at best or two, if it was a really good day in Renaissance Italy, I could just about stay sane. Mm. There was one day actually though, which I remember very clearly, um, was when <laughs> it was my husband was homeschooling the children and I was trying to write this. And I don't know, for whatever reason, every five minutes, somebody was coming into my study saying, I've lost my pencil case. I, I can't I can't remember the password for my laptop. I need a jam jar. And I just, it was so deranging because I couldn't concentrate. And so I went into my, I don't know if you have this word in Swedish, but my youngest daughter has a little, Wendy has like a playhouse in the garden. 
and I went in there and I pulled the door shut behind me and it's really low so I was kind of ergonomically it was very bad for me and I sat in there and it was great nobody found me for about an hour and a half it was amazing, <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. apart from all my I have four cats apart from all four cats who were standing up at the window and I was going go away go away because you'll give me away uh, but they were all just they were just looking in saying what are you doing in there <laughs> so yeah so I'd recommend if anyone needs to write and you're finding your concentration I'll just get, go to a playhouse Perfect solution. Yeah. I mean, you were locked in and Lucrezia is locked in. Yes. She's first locked in uh, the pal palazzo yeah. uh, with her parents. Mm -hmm. And then she's locked in yeah. in the castello and the other houses with her husband. Mm -hmm. Did you see the connection within <laughs> the situations while you were riding? I mean, it's funny. At the time, it didn't really... I didn't think about it particularly. You know, I found I thought of the book and the world of the book as really as an escape from lockdown. It was a way that I survived mentally during it. But actually now when I <laughs> now when I look back, I can see that it's no huge coincidence that during 2020 and 2021 I was writing a book about a girl who has very little choice in life and um she has a very very subscribed destiny and she's essentially in lockdown from the time she was born. I mean, that, that's actually, that's not an exaggeration. It was so, it was considered far too dangerous for the children to leave the palazzo at all. You know, there were, you know, this is, uh, this book set in Italy before Italy existed in a sense. You know, at this point, the country we now call Italy, of course, I'm sure you all know this, but was split into separate city-states, um, some of which were amicable and some of which really weren't. So and it was a kind of halfway house in a sense between the Roman Empire and then when the Italian unification happened um, and each of these states had a ruler like Cosimo or Alfonso and each had its own dialect and its own language and um, so it was a very fraught time in that area's history and Cosimo, Lucrezia's father, was so terrified, he'd had so many assassination attempts on his life that he never left the palazzo without wearing chainmail underneath his clothes mm. and if anyone here has ever been to Italy in high summer, you realise how horrifically uncomfortable that must have been. And actually one of the most, I thought was actually the most horrific assassination attempt I read about was that Cosimo, uh, Lucrezia's father, had a habit of swimming in the Arno River every day in Florence. So he would leave the palazzo and go down with his bodyguards and dive in and swim around. He was very keen on health and physical uh, fitness. Um, and one day, he apparently, he went down to the river and was just about... I assume that he removed his chainmail before he dived in. I hope so. So I think he'd stripped off and he was about to dive in when one of his bodyguards noticed that in the mud, under the water, where he always dived in, somebody or one of his enemies had planted lots and lots of swords Oof. facing upwards. Oof. Yeah, nasty. So that was, what, that was the reality of what they were facing. So it was too dangerous for the children to go anywhere because they were so... Eleanor and Cosmo were so frightened they'd be kidnapped or killed or their heirs would be murdered um and so the, essentially the children spent their time in two rooms in this enormous opulent palazzo and i've seen those nursery rooms and they're not opulent and not fancy they're <laughs> very low ceilinged and quite confined and if they wanted exercise they would just they ran about on the battlements and that was it but they basically essentially lived in a gilded cage mm. lucrezia was um or at least you don't really no one really knows if she was murdered by her husband no. Not, you know, f for a fact. No. Um, but how did you um, attack that situation in your head? How many different scenarios did you have for that? 
Well, it is. I mean, she died. She was married at 15, or she, she began her married life. She was actually betrothed at 13. But thank God her mother said, no, she needs to be mature, which I think basically means she needed to start menstruating. Mm. But they don't say that, obviously, in the letters. Um, <laughs> and so she married Alfonso. Um, she was 15, began her married life, and he was 27. Um, and a year later, she would be dead. And it was rumoured at the time that he had poisoned her. Um, but it's never been proved. It's possible that she died of natural causes or it's possible that he murdered her. Um, <clears throat> and when I began the novel, I thought, I, you know, I should be even-handed with this man. It's not He hasn't been convicted by a jury. You know, I shouldn't condemn him. I just need to be open to the ambiguity of what may have happened. But <laughs> what happened was I actually discovered that uh, uxoricide, the murdering of one's wife, was not exactly uncommon in those times. I mean, not, I mean, we're not even talking about Renaissance uh, Florence. I mean, look at Henry VIII. I mean, he may not have actually cut off Anne Boleyn's head, but he might as well have done. Um, essentially, he just got someone else to do it for him. But um, Lucrezia's older sister, Isabella, was murdered by her husband with the tacit approval of her family, with her brothers, not Cosima. Cosimo and Eleanor were dead by this point. And their youngest brother, Lucrezia and Isabella's youngest brother, also killed his wife. He strangled her with a dog lead. Um, so it's almost as if it was a kind of a, it was a sort of accepted way to behave, it was an accepted way to dispose of a wife that was no longer suitable or serving you or any kind of difficult behaviour. That's how it, that's how it was. That's that's what it was met with. And the thing I found out about Alfonso was that during my research about him, I discovered that when he found out that his sister was having an, a love affair with the head of the guardsmen at their castello he sentenced the man to be strangled to death in public and he forced his sister to watch her lover being strangled. And, you know, I thought that's that's such a disordered and disturbing thing to do and so unnecessarily sadistic that I'm, I have a distinct memory of reading that and then closing the book that I had read it in and thinking, right, Alfonso, I'm coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, right, that's it. Yeah. Anyone who can do that is more than capable of murdering their wife. Yep. Um, I'd like to ask you to read oh, yeah. a, bit, a bit from the book. I mean, Athena read uh, the Swedish translation really nice. It would be nice to hear it in your voice as well. well. I'm going to read it in English, I have to confess. <laughs> My Swedish is, I can say about three words. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so this is actually the very start of the book, and it's a chapter called A Wild and Lonely Place. Lucrezia is taking her seat at the long dining table, which is polished to a watery gleam and spread with dishes, inverted cups, a woven circlet of fur. Her husband is sitting down, not in his customary place at the opposite end, but next to her, close enough that she could rest her head on his shoulder, should she wish. He is unfolding his napkin and straightening a knife and moving the candle towards them both, when it comes to her with a peculiar clarity as if some coloured glass has been put in front of her eyes, or perhaps removed from them, that he intends to kill her. She is sixteen years old, not quite a year into her marriage. They have travelled for most of the day, using what little daylight the season offers, leaving Ferrara at dawn, and riding out to what he had told her was a hunting lodge, far in the northwest of the province. But this is no hunting lodge is what Lucrezia had wanted to say when they reached their destination, a high-walled edifice of dark stone, flanked on one side by dense forest and on the other by a twisting meander of the Po River. 
She would have liked to turn in her saddle and ask, Why have you brought me here? She said nothing, however, allowing her mare to follow him along the path, through dripping trees, over the arched-back bridge and into the courtyard of the strange, fortified, star-shaped building which seemed, even then, to strike her as peculiarly empty of people. The horses have been led away, she has removed her sodden cloak and hat, and he has watched her do this, standing with his back to the blaze in the grate. And now he is gesturing to the country servants in the hall's outer shadows to step forward and place food on their plates, to slice the bread, to pour wine into their cups. And she is suddenly recalling the words of her sister-in-law, delivered in a hoarse whisper. You will be blamed. Lucrezia's fingers grip the rim of her plate. The certainty that he means her to die is like a presence beside her, as if a dark feathered bird of prey has alighted on the arm of her chair. This is the reason for their sudden journey to such a wild and lonely place. He has brought her here to this stone fortress to murder her. Astonishment yanks her up out of her body and she almost laughs. She is hovering by the vaulted ceiling, <clears throat> looking down at herself and him, sitting at the table, putting broth and salted bread into their mouths. He is setting an elbow on either side of his plate, telling her about coming to this lodge, as he persists in calling it, when he was a child how his father used to bring him hunting here. She is listening to a story about how he was made to release arrow after arrow towards a target on a tree until his fingers bled. She is nodding and making sympathetic murmurs at appropriate moments, but what she really wants to do is look him in the eye and say, I know what you are up to. Would he be surprised, wrong-footed? Does he think of her as his innocent, unworldly wife, barely out of the nursery? She sees it all... She sees that he has laid his scheme so carefully, so assiduously, separating her from others, ensuring that her retinue is left behind in Ferrara, that she is alone, that there are no people from the Castello here, just him and her, two guards stationed outside, and a handful of servants to wait on them. How will he do it? Part of her would like to ask him this. The knife in a dark corridor, his hands about her throat, a tumble from a horse made her look like an accident... She has no doubt that all of these would fall within his repertoire. It had better be done well, would be her advice to him, because her father is not someone who will take a lenient view of his daughter's murder. She sets down her cup. She lifts her chin. She turns her eyes onto her husband, Alfonso, Duke of Ferrara, and she wonders what will happen next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not sure if you'll agree with this, uh, but I find that your language is a bit different in this book. Um, it's, it's more dense. Mm -hmm. You're always very good with detail, painting pictures. Um, but I think it was, it's even more intense this time. And I spoke to your translator, uh, Malin Bilund Westfeldt, and she described, oh, she has a fan. <laughs> Maybe that was Molly herself. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was Molly. <laughs> hey, me. Uh, and she describes the book as a long tapestry, woven with, uh, carefully woven and filled with images. Do you agree with this theory? I mean, I do think that every book and every story and narrative requires its own language. So I think you need to think about that. You need to address that. And every day before I started writing, um, I would do an online Italian class. So I lived in Italy for a while. I lived 
quite near Lucca in Tuscany a long time ago, 20, well, almost 20 years ago. So, I mean, my, I'm not saying my Italian is good <laughs> at all, um, but I can understand more than I can speak. And I wanted to immerse myself in a sense in that language. And actually, to be, to be honest though, they aren't, they wouldn't have been speaking what we recognize as modern Italian. Like I said, every region had its own um, language or dialect, but Tuscan, um, which is what Lucrezia and Cosimo and Eleonora would have spoken, um, is, I've heard anyway, um, supposed to be the one that is most closely resembles modern Italian. So I did, I wanted to immerse myself in it. And Italian does have, I think it's, I think and generally it's just a more succinct language than English. You know, they don't often use personal pronouns. Mm. Um, so I wanted to kind of, it was just the rhythm of it, which I wanted to try and get into my head. Um, so I tried to write it. I mean, it's funny, you know, because I, when I thought about writing the book, I thought actually it might be quite useful because I've, my previous book, Hamnet, was set. I think there are about 30 years between Lucrezia and Hamnet in terms of time. But <laughs> actually, when I got into the book, I realised that actually the research I'd done for Hamnet was completely useless and actually <laughs> distinctly unhelpful because the language and the life and the world of an 11-year-old boy in rural Elizabethan England is so far apart from a 16, 15-year-old girl, you know, Principessa living in a palazzo in Italy. So I had to almost deliberately forget everything I knew about 16th century England in order to properly, or hopefully anyway, as close as I could represent 16th century Florence. Mm. There's a red thread going through um, these, these last books. Um, Lucrezia dies. Mm -hmm. uh, Hamnet dies, mm. and in 2017 you wrote an autobiography <laughs> about 17 situations where you or someone in your family almost dies, mm. uh, which is a pretty compelling format for an autobiography, I must say. Um, but I'm going to make a quick uh, switch here. Um, I have a sense that writing about yourself doesn't come easily for you. I'm not so much sure that it doesn't, I don't know about easily, I'm just not very interested in it, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I see writing as a kind of alternative existence that run parallel to mine. Mm. I mean, I, I'm i a very, you know, happy person. I love my life, I love my children, and I love my job, so, you know. But I think if I, the idea of writing about it would be so boring to me, you know. I really enjoy my life and I love living it and I love the people in it, but my writing life is something different. So I want to escape and immerse myself in it. I mean, I think what's, you know, I never thought I would write a memoir. Certainly, I always, I mean, I used to actually joke about it with my husband. He says, I'm the most secretive person he knows. Because if he says to me, if he sees me leaving the house, he says, where are you going? And even if I'm just going to the post office, I, I don't like being asked. So I just say, I'm just going out. Um, Why? I don't know. I just don't. <laughs> he just says, okay, bye. <laughs> um, so he was laughing and he said, your, your memoir's going to be really short. <laughs> You're not going to have to say anything. Um, but so I do, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really interest me, I think. But I, I mean, I will say, you know, that I think what I learned, I mean, one of the many things I learned from writing a memoir is that, of course, I and people, you know, I know in my own experiences, are in my novels, but they in a fi in fiction you can wear a mask. Yeah, but after reading that, um, I came into your work pretty late. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that book, I am, I am, I am, was actually the second book of yours that I read. Okay, and 
it gives me, it's been giving me small keys because I can see things from the book turn up in yeah. your other books. Sure. There's a person or a child with eczema, eczema, eczema. Either is fine. Yes. Or allergies, as you have experiences in your family, for example. Um, do you think that's a good or bad thing, that reading the, the memoir so early? No, I, I don't think there's any... No, there should be no prescribed order. I think you can anyone can read them whenever, <laughs> whenever they want. I would never say... Uh, no, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, yeah, of course... I mean, the thing is, you know, it's inevitable, I think, that in any fiction you are going to use experiences of your own and probably people of those close to you. I think that will happen just because if it's preoccupying you. But actually, by the time that you've fictionalised it and given those experiences and those words to somebody else and you've redrafted them and you've changed it and um, <clears throat> it doesn't really f feel like something that happened to you actually in the end. I think that was one of the most interesting experiences when I was writing <clears throat> my memoir is that weird urge I felt all the time to just change it. You know, I'd be writing my memoir and I'd think, you know, this would be a lot better if I set it in France <laughs> or, you know, be a lot better if there was a third person in this room and I'd think, damn, I can't do it because I, I've got to stick to the truth. The truth is really hard. Fiction is so much easier. Yeah. Making things up is a lot easier than sticking to the truth. Oh, I so disagree. Because <laughs> I'm so much a journalist, I can't make anything up. <laughs> well, that's a good thing, I think. <laughs> sure. But how did you come up with that the, that idea with just, you know, you do have been into an, an amazing number of brushes of death, <laughs> more than anyone I know, at least. But how did you come up with that format? I don't know. I mean, it's funny, I never... You know, like I said, I never intended to write a memoir. You know, I feel very wedded to fiction and very... Um, I've always, you know, I love being a novelist. I love making things up and it's the kind of format that suits me. Um, so it's a strange... And I, but it just occurred to me that actually a brush with death or a near-death experience is something that we've all had. You know, some of us more than others and obviously some more serious than others, but it is something. And one of the strangest conversations that I would have all the time when I was doing events for that book and people would come up to afterwards or signing books or asking questions and <laughs> people wouldn't say, oh, I've never had any brushes with death, not even one. And during the conversation, they would gradually say, actually, you know what? There was that one time when I, oh, that was that other time when, and it's strange, you know, I do think it's one of those experiences that you, it either lodges in you very, very clearly and you think about it all the time or you just completely suppress it and you don't like to think about it. But I do think it's it's a very universal experience and it seemed to me to be an interesting lens um, through which to examine a life. And also the structure of it, which is non-chronological, it, it's arranged by body part rather than time in a sense... It was a good it was a good structure for me because it enabled me well to you know, one of the things that always stopped me writing a memoir is that I never wanted it to be um a tax in a sense on my friends and family. You know, sometimes I read memoirs and I'm horrified by how exposed how exposing it is, not only for the writer but also for their people in their lives. And I never wanted to do that at all. And also, you know, there are things I think in every memoir there are submerged stories, but the structure of it, which is non-chronological, enabled me to actually protect my friends and my family. So no one in the book has the real name apart from my husband, um, and uh, has a name. Everyone else is unnamed. Um, and you couldn't do that if you were writing chronologically, because you couldn't say 
my elder sister and my younger sister. <laughs> you know, and if you skip five years in a chronological memoir, the reader would quite rightly think, well, hang on a minute, what was that? Mm. So it enabled me to hide things about myself, or not talk about things that I didn't want to talk about, and also, you know, protect the identity and, you know, integrity for my family. Mm. When people choose to write full-time, I'm always uh, fascinated and also a bit jealous that you're able to, <laughs> because uh, as a people, as a person who write myself, even though in a, in a whole different way, uh, it, it doesn't always come easy for me. Um, so I'd like to talk about your relationship to writing. Um, I mean, you began talking about it a bit earlier, but how would you describe your relationship to writing? Does it come easy to you? Um, I have to say that I love the expression writing full time. It makes it sound so organized and kind of <laughs> serious and <laughs> structured, which for me anyway, it never is. And also I should say that I have three children and there's never any kind of sense of full time, even when they're allegedly supposed to be at school, you know. Um, there's <laughs> been times, you know, I mean, I'm sure anyone can relate, but, you know, I sit down at my desk on a Monday and I think, oh, fantastic, I've got five days. And I will literally put my hands to the keyboard and suddenly the phone will ring and it will be the school and say, I'm, someone's fallen out of a tree, you know, and they've sprained their ankle and you have to come. And I think, oh, I was so close. So you never know, you know, life with... Um, as many children as I have foolishly had, there are <laughs> there are always going to be unexpected things. So that does happen all the time. Mm. But also, I don't know, the idea that it's so structured, I'm not really a planner. I mean, I should say also that I never kind of... I think a lot of people ask if you need to be disciplined to write, and <laughs> discipline is not really something that applies. So I do... I mean, I love it. I love writing, and I would never pretend otherwise. I think it's... You know, I, sometimes I hear other writers at events like this saying, um, oh, it's so hard, you know. <laughs> I once went to a book launch where, I won't tell you who it is, but the writer said, <laughs> writing is the hardest job in the world. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> say it, it's so next hardest job in the world. And I wanted to shout, oh, really? What about being a nurse in A&E? You know, <laughs> isn't that a little exactly. bit harder? You know, being an ambulance driver, maybe a coal miner, you know, I mean... Yeah. It's such nonsense. And then he said, and of course, the, se <laughs> the second most hardest job in the world is my wife's because she lives with a writer. At which point I was, I was actually wanting to throw my glass at his head. Anyway, um, so no, I don't hold with any of that nonsense. I can't bear it. And I wanted to say, you know, basically, if you're a writer, you sit at home in your pyjamas talking to your imaginary friends. I mean, how hard can it be, really? Um, <laughs> So I don't, so no, it doesn't, I mean, I have to be disciplined to wash my kitchen floor and I have to be disciplined to file my tax return, but I never have to be disciplined to write. It's just not really a question of that. The only challenge I really have is actually finding the time and peace mm. and space to write. That's always a struggle, I think, in a busy household, um, do, even when we're not in lockdown. Yeah. Do you normally write, I mean, how, for me, I mean, when I write uh, portraits or stories, it's much shorter, but mm. it always takes me ages to think of the first two, three sentences. Mm. But when I get them, then it's just often like, because it's been, you know, marinating. Mm. How does it work for you when you begin something? I, would go, I think beginnings are really hard. And that's the bit I avoid, like the plague. Mm. So I, that's what I wish someone had told me, actually, when I first started, is that you don't have to begin at the beginning with a novel. You can begin wherever you like. You know, you can begin near the end. You can begin halfway through. And actually, the first bit of the marriage portrait that I ever wrote 
actually, I think, appears now on about page 50. I can't remember where it is, but it's the bit where the young Lucrezia is taken down to the basement and she meets the tiger. It's the bit that um, yeah. was read at the beginning. Uh, and that was the first bit of the novel I ever wrote, just that I was, I'd was been thinking about it and I'd been researching it and I'd found out that Cosimo had an exotic menagerie in the basement, as apparently all self-respecting rulers at that time did. It was just a kind of... <laughs> A status symbol like you might buy a Ferrari now, but in those days you had your own mini zoo. Um, Henry VIII had one in the Tower of London as well. Uh, it's such a horrific idea, isn't it? They're keeping caged animals in your basement. So here that, and I, I just became really intrigued by this idea, and I thought, what would it be like for this child to be living in a in a palazzo with that? So she goes down and she meets the tiger, and she has this kind of feeling of affinity between her and the animal. Um, and that was the first thing I ever wrote about her. And in a sense, that scene was me getting to know Lucrezia, you know, it was finding out who she was and what made her tick. And so the, the act of the, of the, the act of writing it was me, you know, shaking hands with her in a sense. Um, but because, because it was lockdown, I couldn't, I mean, obviously I've seen tigers in my life, but I was, would have in normal days, I would have gone to a zoo or safari park just to be next to one. But of course it was lockdown. So <laughs> actually all I had was I borrowed my daughter's um, plastic toy tiger which is actually quite anatomically nice. And I had it on my desk. I had about three of them on my desk while I was writing it. So that's how it works in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> when you came up with the idea for the marriage portrait, you, when it came instantly, you understood it. And you said that that was unusual for you. Mm. What does a story have to have? What, what components for you or, or, you know, what a grain of an idea? What does it have to have for you to be drawn to it, to keep pushing for it? I think it's strange. I think it's different every time. Sometimes you never quite know which part, which element it is that, you know, because I have, I have a book in my, which I call my ideas book and I will write anything in there, even if it's just an idea for a story or a line or a title or a whole novel. I never really know. So I scroll through it and sometimes when I'm feeling a bit inspirationist, I will flick through it. Some of which I'll laugh at all the things I wrote now thinking, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> um, so it's really, it's actually very hard to pin down. I think in... With this book, certainly, it was the desire to... I was thinking about this girl who has been in the poem, you know, and she's been... Her portrait has been behind this curtain and only the Duke can pull it back. And so I just had this urge to, in a sense, pull that curtain out of his grasp and pull it back myself and say, right, mm. you know, it's her turn to speak now. What What's her story? Um, so I suppose it was, it was a kind of sense of... Anger as well, actually, you know, there's just the horror at the idea of these young girls who were sold. I mean, they were essentially sold into political marriages that were mergers, really, between their different states and how that must, what it must have felt like. And I suppose also the belief that, you know, I think, obviously, you know, writing about the past, I think it's it's important, obviously, to recognise that the world changes all the time. You know, Lucrezia's world is so different from our world. But at the same time, I don't think that the human spirit and the human heart and the human brain changes that much at all mm. and the idea of you know I mean I I have two teenagers in the house and <laughs> the idea that you could try and force a 15 year old girl to do anything <laughs> I find a bit jaw-dropping really I mean my daughter's 14 and the idea that I mean I can't even get her to go to the shops to buy me some butter <laughs> let alone <laughs> sell her to a 27 year old man she's never met <laughs> <laughs> so just the idea that, you know, these girls, I mean, you know, I, just, I suppose I was just fascinated. You go to the Uffizi Gallery and you see the rooms and rooms full of these girls, and let's call them girls because that's what they were, um, 
And they look so beautiful and demure and accepting and happy with their lot. But I don't for a minute believe that they were. Of course they weren't, and they must have hated it. I mean, hopefully, some. I mean, obviously, Lucrezia's mother, Eleonora, she was very lucky and very happy in her marriage. But I don't. I think she was probably the exception to the rule. Mm. What would you say? You've been. It's been twenty-three years since you were first published. Oh God, that sounds terrifying. No, it's no, only it's about five. I would say <laughs> it's about four or five. I think. <laughs> what would you say if there is? Any, what would you say, is there a red thread running through your books? Or what kind of stories you <sighs> like to write? I don't know. I'm probably the worst person to ask because actually I I take a very um, deliberate ostrich approach to thinking about things like this. <laughs> um, I steer myself away from it. I think it's probably quite bad for you in a way. It's a bit like how you know, we all know never to look at the sun. It's very bad for us. You know, we know it's there and it gives us life and it sustains us and keeps us warm and grows our food, but we would never stare it in the face. And I feel a bit the same about where writing comes from and why it comes. And so I'd never analyse it too much. I think it would be not very good for me. And it's part of the reason why I never read any reviews or press or anything like that. Ever? Never. I really never do. I know people always do pull that face. They always do. <laughs> no, I would rather. I'd rather do almost anything, because I think it's even if it's you know my husband reads things and he will tell me if it's good or if it's bad. And if it's bad, he tells me who wrote it. Um, so <laughs> if I'm at a party, I think, oh yeah, I know you. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think it's. I think it's really. I think you have to write, or I. I do anyway, in a complete bubble of unselfconsciousness. You know, especially the first draft. The first draft is a very, very precious time. It's very, very fragile. The book is so fragile at that point, which is why I never talk about things that I haven't finished because, you know, it's almost you don't want even a breath of wind on it or even a pair of eyes on it. You have to do it just for yourself. You know, and I think you always have to write the kind of book. That you know that you want to write the kind of book you can't not write. You have to write the book that's shouting your name the loudest or tugging at your sleeve most insistently. And I think if you try and second guess what it is that readers want or reviewers want, or it's never going to be a very good book because it has to come from here and it has to be an impulse that you can't ignore. Mm. So that's part of the reason why I never do it because I don't want. It's not because I'm scared of reading criticism or anything. It's because I don't want to hear a reviewer say she is this or she does that or her absorptions or her interests are this or her metaphors are this because I it's bad for me to know that yeah you you want, don't want to be affected yeah exactly I don't want to hear that head when I'm writing I want to hear these voices instead your husband's a writer as well yeah does he write does he read his reviews or do you read his reviews for him no he reads them all and i don't know how he i can't but i can't i find it difficult to read his reviews <laughs> no but he he likes to read mine and he says can i just read your line and i say no 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 not even one line <laughs> not even if it's good no 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 i definitely don't want to read it oh that would be the worst for me of all <laughs> so I'm guessing what are you working on now is the question that won't work. No, I can't tell you. I mean, I have started something. It's very early days, but um, no, I can't send it. I can tell you it's set in Paris. Oh, it's set in Paris? Yeah, but that's it, I'm afraid. It's the shortest answer to any of your questions. <laughs> Sounds pretty promising, though. <laughs> well, it's a horrible job because it means I've got to go to Paris to do research, which, so it's awful. Oh, yeah. I feel so sorry for you. Really, I know. Please feel sorry for me. It's a, it's, it's, it's a real, you know, I, but I will do it for you. 
<laughs> but you, were, as Athena said, you were born in Northern Ireland. You've lived in Scotland, Wales. You've lived in Hong Kong. You stayed. You've travelled a lot. Where do you feel most at home? That's a tricky question. Um, I don't know. It's really hard. And people often say to me, "Well, what are you? Are you British? Are you Irish? Are you this? Are you that?" And actually, I don't. I don't really know. I have two passports. I have an Irish passport, which I've always had, and I had a British passport more recently. Um, so it's hard. I mean, I do. I feel. I'm very. Feel very, very connected to Ireland, and I'm very proud of being born there, and that's my official nationality. But as if anyone here is familiar with Irish accents, you can hear that I haven't got one at all. Mm. Um, so in that way, it's 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 a strange one. I don't really know is the answer. I have heard uh, one of my sisters says that she feels most at home um, in the sea, halfway between Britain and Ireland. <laughs> So I think that may be true of me as well. <laughs> I've been on that sea once when I was interrailing in a great storm. It's a very rough sea. Yes, it's awful. not actually a good place to feel at home. You'll probably be puking oh, over the side. Yeah. What's your relationship to Sweden? Because Swedes turn up in the books as well. Yes, I love Sweden actually. I'm not. I'm very unabashed about it. I, I love. Uh, I really love it. And I came here for the first. I was doing travel journalism. And I've always wanted to come to Sweden and I thought, well, I'm going to try and <laughs> make it into a job. And so I came and I did a travel piece about the Stockholm archipelago, which is really nice. I can't believe you had that just so close to your city. Um, and that was oh, that was a long time ago, actually. And then um, so then about I can't remember when it was, about seven, eight years ago, I had a phone call from my new Swedish publishers and they said, do you want to come to Sweden? Um which the only answer can be yes, please, very soon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and now you've been here again and you're going home tomorrow. Yes. yes. I mean, it's been really nice talking to you. And afterwards, now in the lobby, you will be signing books. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to thank you and the audience for listening to this conversation. And thank you, Maggie O'Farrell. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, such fans. <laughs>